Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Dr. Sahanika Ratnayaka, a philosopher of psychiatry and medicine whose work focuses on talking therapy. She's interested in what constitutes evidence for talking therapy, the ethics of therapy, and the integration of therapy into healthcare systems. She's currently a researcher at the UK Council for Psychotherapy. She joins us today to discuss her paper published in a recent issue of Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology titled, It's Been Utility All Along, An Alternate Understanding of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and the Depressive Realism Hypothesis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ratnayaka. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your research. Um, No worries. Happy to be here. The first question I like to ask all our guests is, what is your academic origin story? Can you tell us uh, how you came to study philosophy and psychology? I love that, like, you know, like you're a superhero or something, yeah. like, what is your origin story? <laughs> um, so it's interesting because the philosophy one is basically, so I did my undergrad in New Zealand where you mm. got to try a little bit of everything. So. Um, you don't have to kind of decide your major until a bit later down the road. And I went in going, of course, I'm going to do English and history. And it was when I did those papers, it was fine. But philosophy was the first time where from the beginning, someone wants to know what you think about something. Mm. So it's not, have you read all this stuff? And, you know, like, what does so-and-so say about this? Like, there's a bit of that in history of philosophy. But from the beginning, people want to know, what do you think about Plato? Mm. Do you think this is good or bad? And there's something about that like now I think kind of viciousness that I love like you just go straight for it um (laughs) so so almost immediately I just sort of fell in love with that spirit of philosophy Mm. um the psychology bit was kind of a surprise to me actually um Mm. so I had actually started this PhD on Buddhist philosophy and it, it was around this time that like almost for a joke, me and my friend who's a classicist, we started working on mindfulness. And one of the things we were looking at was there's this way in which um, mindfulness exercises are presented as a contextual these days. So you get told they have sort of roots in Buddhist stuff, but you know, that's not how we do it. And because David is a classicist and I was studying Buddhist philosophy, I was like, listen, you can't just kind of pick up these practices, move it to another place and say it's not Buddhist. So we just wrote this little paper on that and we I don't know I think I just caught the bug really for therapy at that point so I actually ended up leaving that PhD and reapplying for grad school because I was like I don't actually want to be working on Buddhist philosophy I want to be looking at therapy Mm. and these connections yeah very cool. Very cool. And I, I love, and that's one of the reasons why I always ask this question, because I feel like everyone's got this winding odd, you know, sort of, they say, oh, it's a sort of a meandering, meandering story, but inevitably you can kind of see where it started, like kind of the, the inklings of it in the beginning. Absolutely. Your paper in the July 2022 issue of Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology examines cognitive behavioral therapy and offers up some criticism of its logic. For those who might not be familiar with it, can you explain what CBT is and how it's practiced? I think, like, for anyone who's done CBT or sort of, you know, gets introduced to it, one of the central things you'll first get told is this thing with the cognitive triangle or the CBT triangle, right? So you get told that there's this interlocking relationship between your thoughts and your behaviors and your feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And these influence each other in various ways. So, 
you know, when you feel bad, it often has something to do with your thoughts, and then that in turn leads to problematic behavior. And so, right? so mm-hmm. the directions can go back and forth, mm-hmm. but the part to do with the thoughts, so the cognitive part, still remains quite central to contemporary CBT. Mm-hmm. So when you go in for a course of cognitive behavioral therapy, often you will talk about, you know, what are the kinds of thoughts you have around this situation, or what are your core beliefs here. So. The paper is very much about the cognitive part of mm. cognitive behavioral therapy. And what I was really interested in is this way in which you get told that there's something wrong about these thoughts. So you're told mm-hmm. they're distorted, or often you get a lot of different kinds of language. So you get told they're faulty, or there's issues with their validity and their utility and so on. So I wanted to look at one particular kind of problem, which is what philosophers say describe as epistemic problems so mm-hmm. where there's something erroneous about them or false or you've sort of jumped to a conclusion here which is very different from just you know this thought makes you feel bad so someone is telling you there's something very substantively epistemically wrong with this belief mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I would say that's one of the big things that the paper is taking CBT to task for yeah thank you and that actually leads me right to my next question which is that you're what you kind of you're one of your big arguments in the paper is that these these um, false beliefs, and I put that in, in air quotes, these false beliefs are mm-hmm. something that all people deal with, um, regardless mm-hmm. of their mental health. Everybody has these. Everybody, you know, jumps to conclusions. Everyone occasionally has, you know, black mm-hmm. and white thinking. Um, but you also note that the way that these beliefs are tested and valued is faulty at best and unethical at worst. Um, mm-hmm. Can you kind of walk us through that that jump that you that I I mean that conclusion without you know that this is sort of one of the biggest tenets of your paper but so but I just kind of wanted to for our for our listeners to understand um you know how you got to that argument no absolutely I mean because yeah there's the kind of two separate things right the issue of whether everyone including men you know mentally healthy or mentally unwell people have these kind of problematic beliefs and then there's the other as you say which is very central which is well, you know, even if they do actually the way CBT tests this stuff, it can't actually help you with these epistemic issues. Mm. And so in order to do that, what I really did was I looked very closely at the specific therapeutic techniques that you find used in CBT. So some of the big things that, um, you know, is encouraged and you get this from looking at therapist training manuals. Mm. So that's where I got the background to these techniques. Mm. Um, And often what you'll get asked to do, and I've encountered this actually in CBT therapy you'll get asked to think about you know when you think something that makes you a bit unhappy or leads to behaviors that you're trying to change you get asked hey like let's think about how like that thing you're thinking so you get told well what else is a plausible explanation of this and you know in the more kind of textbook CBT since they do this thing called hypothesis testing Mm -hmm. right so they go okay you think this but let's go out and do something to see if that belief is true or false. Mm -hmm. And this all sounds really like there's something very convincing about this. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, I think what I want to point out is that it's actually really hard to tell when something is true or false, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why we do elaborate experiments in science, for instance, like you carefully control all the variables and you check all the bits and pieces are working okay. And even in those pristine conditions, it's really hard to tell when, Mm -hmm. you know, your hypothesis is supported or not. So I just thought it was extremely implausible that when you do these things kind of on the fly with much less pristine conditions that you could just very easily figure out whether Mm -hmm. someone's thinking is erroneous or not. 
So I think it's sort of like in philosophy of science, we talk about um, this thing called underdetermination. Mm. And basically what that means is if you have a certain pool of evidence, it's actually really tell hard to tell what's a very sensible thing to think about, um, like to conclude from that evidence. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the case in science. And in the case of everyday life, this is much worse, right? Because the evidence is much worse. Um, mm-hmm. One of the kind of textbook examples you get in CBT that I love is this thing about, you know, um, you sort of run into one of your friends after some sort of event and they sort of brush past you very quickly. And then you start thinking, oh, my God, like they want nothing to do with me. Right. I've done some horrible things. And the thing is, like, I love this example because it's utterly relatable. Oh, my gosh. I'm smiling and, because I'm like, yes, yeah, I know, like I how know. many times? Like, Are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Oh, God, is she mad at me? Yeah. Like, I hear the voice and, in my head as you're describing Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, like, when this is presented in therapy training manuals, it's presented as like, it's really obvious that once you thinking, once you start thinking about how likely it is, you'll think, oh, that's not likely at all. Or you'll think, oh, maybe they're busy. Or, you know, like if you went out and tried to see if this person wanted to hang out with you, it would be like unambiguous, that evidence. And it's actually not, right? Mm. I think quite a lot of the time, if you really went into the nitty gritty of it, like it's quite hard to tell if someone's annoyed at you or not. That's why you start thinking this thought in the first place. Right. And I know, I know this, this is going to make me sound like a terrible person, but there's definitely cases where I've sort of slowly withdrawn from someone and become cold because mm-hmm. I didn't know how to sort of go, listen, like our friendship is not going very well at the moment or something. So mm-hmm. I just think that doesn't make you a terrible person. That makes you totally <laughs> human because everybody listening has done that. I know, I know. And that's the thing. And I think it's very, that's why I just think it's really funny that, you know, it's the stuff is presented to you as it's obvious that it, right. you're just overthinking this. And it's like, right. it's not at all obvious, no, actually. No. It's extremely hard to tell in everyday life if someone's ghosting you or not. <laughs> I love that example so much. And I just, <laughs> I think it really drives home the point, which is that, you know, the, which is kind of the point, at least how I read the point of your paper, which is that the, the reasoning of CBT is sort of like, it touts itself as this like very sort of logical step of like very mm-hmm. scientifically, you know, this is your hypothesis. You need to test it out and accept it or reject it. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. it's using logic to kind of explain away these thoughts, but you can't do that with what's going on inside your head. And not only that, but all of those thoughts have a grain of truth somewhere. You know, sometimes somebody was mean to you and they were mad yeah. at you. And like, you know what I mean? Like there's a reason why you develop no, these thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this kind of brings... I guess to me to that like kind of unethical bit of the question right which Mm -hmm. is like I think partially it's utterly disingenuous because someone's making you think like this is kind of an obvious thing about truth and falsity or accuracy Mm -hmm. and accuracy and really the thing is like does this thought make you unhappy or not right Mm -hmm. and I guess like when I was doing CBT I really bristled at this thing where someone was telling me look isn't it clear that like you've kind of jumped to this inference and I'm like well it's not clear but what I can believe like what I'm happy to live with is the thought that it's really hard to tell what I'm supposed to think so I might as well think something that's not you know that doesn't make me constantly second guess our friendship Mm -hmm. or like I leave Mm -hmm. it open like I think that's a sort of the middle ground that I reach by the end of the paper right so instead Mm -hmm. of kind of disingenuously going look there's something wrong with your thoughts and we've got an obvious way to solve it I think you can open up this middle ground where you say well, if it's hard to tell, why not think something that's a little bit more positive, maybe? Mm-hmm. So I want to leave that open. Um, I think, you know, at its worst, this can be like, disin- not just disingenuous, but unethical, which mm-hmm. is 
like in a clinical sense, which I think is if you go in to therapy and you're the therapist and you're convinced the other person is rational, like you can only really provoke a hostile relationship or mm. make someone extremely distressed, I think. Mm -hmm. And because we don't really do very much research on that aspect of therapy, it's quite, it's really hard to get anything other than anecdotal evidence. About it. Mm -hmm. but there's little bits and pockets of, it's funny because in training manuals, you'll often get these kind of almost side comments where people go like, you know, there's been some evidence that this can provoke like a hostile reaction or it can be a bit, be careful how you approach this. And that's something I think, yeah. And I think that's quite interesting that it's underexplored because I can mm, see. They're skirting around actually, it. Yeah. Exactly. I think it can be quite distressing. I've certainly found it mm -hmm. like really off-putting when someone mm -hmm. is quite sure that this is what's obviously going wrong. Yeah. yeah and so. there's a, there's a, there's a power dynamic to it too. You know what no, I mean? Absolutely. Where it's just like, I know what's true and right sitting in this chair with my clipboard and you do not. Uh, and yes. I, and I, I really, I, that resonated with me as I was reading your paper. Cause I, I mean, I've had CBT. I, you know, I, the other thing that popped into my head was thinking about, um, treatment for uh, addiction and how it, mm. there's, there's a very similar sort of like, you need to admit that you're an addict and you need to just yeah. accept that these are the steps that you need to take, which may work wonderfully for some people. And, and I, that's great for them, but nobody ever says, well, you know, can I, can I, can I be somewhere in the middle it's just it's so black yes. and white it's yes. it's almost like black and white thinking which is one of the things they say you're not supposed to do <laughs> it's, it's amazing that isn't it's it? a circular argument it's, no and i think the authority thing is really interesting right because like I, I think one of the upshots of that is definitely like when you kind of go are you sure about this like this isn't working for me you're kind of almost automatically dismissed yeah like and there's the, a yeah, yeah yeah that's a good word mm -hmm. and I think, and I think that's part of the kind of like ethical conundrum of this, like all the ethical repercussions, because it is bad to go into therapy assuming the other person's just wrong and mm -hmm. they don't know what's good, like what's working for them. It's kind of like, um, I think somewhere else I kind of described it as there's an element of, do you know, Miranda Frick has written a lot about epistemic injustice and mm. like it's become sort of like extremely trendy at the moment, which I'm like suspicious, but <laughs> I I think because of the background power dynamic, like you can see a parallel case here in therapy, right? So you have that kind of systematic, um, you know, I guess discrepancy in power. And also you get someone, and then you get the epistemic dimension where you get someone telling someone else, hey, the way your reasoning is wrong or the way mm. you understand yourself and your life is wrong. And that's like quite extreme actually. And it's mm -hmm. quite a dangerous thing, I think, to say to someone, who has mental health issues because mm -hmm. then that's where the injustice part comes in because mm -hmm. I think it's highly plausible that you can be mentally ill but actually like epistemically fine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting one of the one of the parts of your paper that really struck me um I truly I just kind of sat back and and was like wow <laughs> was um there was a portion where you talk about um that there have been studies um that indicate mm. that individuals with depression schizophrenia and autism actually score higher than those who are mentally healthy again air quotes mm -hmm. individuals um on, on tests that are looking at things like reasoning and awareness of your own self-control um which mm -hmm. really kind of hammered home your point so well um i was hoping you could speak more to that and just sort of elaborate on on what those studies showed yeah i mean so i do want to say what's really interesting about that area of the literature is that it is quite live so no one it's so hard to tell in these cases 
who is right. So like this literature, I think like really kicks off with this study that gets called um, the sadder but wiser study by mm. Eloy and Abramson. And it's basically about, it, it sounds really daft because it's so simplistic, but basically they have a light bulbs, a series of light bulbs, I think, and it sort of comes in and out, on and off in a sequence, right? And then the people who are being experimented on, they get told, you know, like press a button. And a bit like it's sort of left open whether there's any relationship with the sequence of the lights and the button. Mm. But people who are mentally healthy think pressing the button has something to do with when the light comes on and off. Mm. And people who had depression just think they're totally unrelated, which they were. Mm. And the thing is, the thing about these studies is, and you have them in different areas, right? So for instance, you have ones to do with feedback. So people who are mentally healthy remember like positive feedback, mm. whereas people who are depressed kind of, they tend to remember negative feedback, but they tend to remember the whole feedback in a way that people who are mentally healthy don't. They only think we only remember the positive, you mean? Yeah, they tend to mm. be, so there's this kind of positive skew in mental health, ah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. which is quite interesting. And which is a skew. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's quite funny. Why is that worse or better to... than a negative skew? <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that's the open question, right? But like, but the thing is, there's a very, I think in a way it kind of supports the other point that I'm saying, which is like, it's one thing in the case of a light bulb and a button to be able to tell who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. But in everyday life, like this is so much harder. And it's exactly, as you said, like, well, you've got positive skews and negative skews, but it's not clear actually which one of them is like right, or if that's even mm -hmm. the best question to be asking in this situation. So mm -hmm. I just think, I just find this really fascinating because I think there's a lot of stuff, especially in the positive psychology literature that kind of adds up to the thought that mental health actually is about just kind of having that positive skew. And you can see how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go into something expecting it to go well so you just don't worry about it terribly and it goes fine but mm -hmm. if you go in nervous and anxious like there's that kind of self-sabotage that happens right you're yeah. hyper aware of what you're doing you think like I think someone's I think Lisa Bortolotti's got this great example of public speaking in particular mm. so if you go in already nervous like of course you're going to stammer through the thing and you're going to notice every mistake you make right. whereas if you just kind of think oh it'll be fine I'll wing it like you're just not going to get hang hung up every time you stumble over a word or anything. So mm -hmm. I think that like, and it's, and the person who's, and it's not really like easy to tell, like um, if you're interested in it purely epistemically, whether someone should think I'm good at public speaking or not. Mm. It's, it's very helpful to believe that, but is that true or false? Is that accurate? Like, who knows? Mm -hmm. That's a really right. tricky one. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, it's, like you said at the beginning, it, 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 when you're talking about the, in, the, the inner workings of someone's thoughts, you can't mm. you can't get to that. I could I could say I'm a virtuoso at the piano and sit down, mm. and I'm not a virtuoso at the piano, and that's like a little <laughs> bit more clear cut. But um, but yeah, I just I, I find that so fascinating. The other thing I was thinking of as you were just as you were answering that question was kind of that notion of sort of which I've seen a lot of in social media and other things lately, which is this notion of toxic mm. pos positivity oh, um, yeah. and just kind of like you, you know, just maintain positive attitude no matter what and um, how that just that can backfire. You know what I mean? If you don't allow mm. yourself the grace and 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 understanding what it means to be human, um, that it's not going to be like that all the time. And if you're teaching no, your, if you're teaching your children that, then, then they're going to be in therapy. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know? I mean, 
what do you do then with things like that are inevitable, right? Like failure or right. death or something, right? Yeah. There's not like, and I think so much of that is very like, you learn so much from those experiences right. and it's not just about like pushing through or having a positive mindset. It, it can mm-hmm. be really sort of humbling, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, like I worry about this preoccupation with shifting someone constantly towards a positive mindset because mm-hmm. like I think you lose quite a lot of those opportunities there as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh I totally agree um so how could a practitioner learn from your research and their own work with clients what kind of recommendations would you give to a therapist who's who's listening if you're like one of those people on a cooking show where you're like here's something I prepared earlier well by the time the paper came out we'd already me and um, a co-author we'd published a paper on the ethics of cbt which has i guess it's a more practical take on the stuff i say in this oh, paper. Nice. like okay yeah so it's i think it's in the oxford handbook for psychotherapy ethics and it's just called ethics of cognitive behavioral therapy okay. and it l- looks at all the techniques that i look at in this paper but it gives clinical recommendations oh perfect well we'll link to that in the show description oh, that was great fabulous. and i love that that you know you open up the oven and here's the cake already made that was an excellent analogy <laughs> i guess i want to just say like in a more general sense i wish like therapists would come to the table with like a bit more i don't know a less sureness i guess mm, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. what's going on with someone i think i think especially with something like cognitive behavioral therapy where you're kind of like it's very shiny right at the moment and it's there's a lot of it keeps getting touted as you know it's evidence-based and especially in the uk where i am mm-hmm. it's part of the national health service so it's the right. sort of big game in town and i think it makes people kind of think that it's on much surer foundations is, which I think is quite a dangerous mm-hmm. thing to take into the therapy room, right? Where you want to be more open-minded about what's going on with someone and whether they've interpreted their situation accurately, or even if that's the like most sensible way of looking at what's going on with them. So like, yeah, I mean, I think I would like, a, I think in a more general sort of, if they could take on a certain therapeutic pan- stance where you're willing to be mistaken, like that's the one I hope will be the takeaway mm. from the paper. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And just the the ability for a, a therapist to to go into that relationship with the just an iota of humble humbleness, <laughs> humility mm-hmm. is the word I'm looking for. Um, to know that you could learn something new, you know. And I think that's that's where this journal in particular kind of sits so nice and squarely because it's not. You know, it's it's not a, a clinician's journal in the sense that it's like you know this mm-hmm. study was done and we we showed the X Y Z. It's it's a it's a mm-hmm. very particular space where you and folks that are in this discipline can kind of have these mental exercises and 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 philosophical you know journeys to sort of get to like well what if and it's it's um mm. I just I'm I'm just thinking back the, the very first question I asked you which is kind of like why did you get into this and it was like that well right away it's like well what do you think and mm. um I think that that's that's just a kind of a it's such a unique place in particular with this journal in the sense that it's not um you know it's not quantitative study uh, you know all mm. over the place no, it's absolutely. more it's, it's just more like let's let's take a step back and think about why we're doing this the way we're doing this and and what questions no, we, could, was, we could ask I think that's right and you know it's quite funny because I was doing I guess the revisions on this paper as I was writing the ethics of CBT mm-hmm. um, chapter and I did struggle with that because I think this is like the sort of machinery in the background like this is why I think the things I think and then the other one was 
Mm-hmm. Well, given that, like, this is what I think people should do. And it was sort of weird to write them in a decoupled sense, but it's nice ah. to know that both bits are out in the world. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. a place for both. There's a place for both. No, I think I totally agree. That's great. Well, on that, on that same token, what, uh, what are you currently working on research wise? Do you have any papers that you're working Ooh. on or books that you'd like to share with us? Yes. Well, I've done something a bit weird, which is that I have left actually to go to so I left a postdoc recently to go work for the UK Council of Psychotherapy. So I'm sort ah. of neck deep in therapy these days. Ah. Um, and I'm doing sort of more, like I have a lot of independent research projects, but sort of at work I'm doing really applied versions of the things I'm already interested in. Like mm. One of my big questions um, going sort of as I moved into my post-PhD work was what does evidence mean in therapy like when you say something is evidence-based or Mm. like this is backed by research Mm -hmm. what does that mean for therapy because I think there's this tendency to think that therapy you just do the same things that you do for medical interventions you run clinical trials Mm -hmm. and I think that's just like utterly wrong for therapy which is a very different kind of thing Mm. um Mm. so it's quite fun to be able to do a job where you have those conceptual thoughts but then you do practical things with them like you make you know, submissions to the health service and you say, listen, like you need things other than controlled trials for this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Which, so I'm enjoying that. And I'm looking at, I guess, now the evidence base for different kinds of therapies. Mm. So this is kind of, this is both like a work thing and a, my independent research. So other than the question of evidence, I'm still interested in these ethical questions around therapy as well. So like, I'm hoping to do more around if you use particular techniques in therapy, like what problems do they present? Not mm. just what does this school of therapy, like what are the ethical issues specific to this type of therapy, but just this particular technique, what what do you want to be careful around with that? Uh, so I think I that's quite fun. And I, I'm weirdly, it's weird, it's weird to say you're writing a book because like the process of writing a book is more like there's this insane lead in where you have to write the proposal and then right. your agent like talks to you endlessly about it. And then at some point a book will come, um, but I am doing that. And it's- Well, I, I work at a publisher, on... so I do understand. Yes, you would know, yes. So it's like, at what point do you say I'm writing a book? Oh, I know, I'm I know. The... Like, it's... I'm with you, I'm with you. But I, I think I think after this conversation, <laughs> you can create your own truth and say, I am writing a oh, book. Sh- <laughs> it's like how when I, I say I, I'm a runner. I say that all the time. I'm like, I'm a runner, but I don't really like, it's like, no, I run. <laughs> I run. So therefore I'm a runner and you write. So therefore yes. you're writing a book. I mean, at some, at some point, at some point you've got to commit, don't you? Exactly. Just... No, I think that's wonderful. Um, yes. So I guess I'm writing a general audience book about therapy. And nice. it's, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to describe it because sometimes I jokingly refer to it as my anti-therapy book, which it's not. Oh, really, um, I like it. I th- I think one of the things I'm trying to say in it is like therapies become such a big thing culturally. So we mm-hmm. just kind of, by default, I think we think that going to therapy is a sensible thing for a lot of things. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you break up with someone, you go to therapy, you're having mm-hmm. a rough time, you go to therapy. So I think one of the things I'm hoping to do in the book is question that's like, is this the thing we want to do for all our life problems? Or it could it be mm. better for some things and not others, for some people and not others, and so on. So, Interesting. yeah, this is my, I don't know, it's my sort of anti-therapy book. I oh, I, but I but I, I like anti-therapy book is, I mean, as, as a marketer, I'm like, oh, that's great. That's a it's, great hook. I would pick I it up off the is shelf. It, <laughs> I know, I can see that because I think my agent's been shopping it around and I don't, I think she starts off there and then she says more nonsense. Right. 
Oh, I, but I, I'm, I'm really intrigued and I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Sahanika. This has been a great conversation and I look forward to reading your, your future book and, and, and all of your other research. That'd be great. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.